there? Two of you? I got two of you. I only need one. That's all I need. I need one. That's all I need. So we're going to do something. And some of you, this is like, you're like, oh, man, we're going to talk about this. And it's like, I've heard this before, or I know this. And some of you, you guys have been Christians for a long time. And so my question isn't whether you know it. My question is, is are you doing it? You only know it if you're doing it. If you're not doing it, then don't tell me you know it. You understand what I'm saying? If you know it, we're going to talk about the Bible. We do something here at Elevate, a basic form of discipleship. Everything has a minimum standard. Would we agree? There's a minimum standard to graduate high school. There's a minimum standard for college entrance. There's minimum standards for almost everything in our world. Particularly, there's job requirements. You have to perform at the minimum standard. There's a minimum standard to discipleship, in case you didn't know that. We are called to be disciples. This is one of the things that Matt, the Bible tells us. Jesus came to them after he had risen from the grave and he had appeared to his disciples and he said to them, all power has been given to me. In other words, there's no higher authority than me. I'm giving this authority to you. Now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. One of the things that gospel does not teach us to do is to make converts. It tells us to make disciples. Now, that's not to say that we're not to bring people to Christ. That is the goal. But the goal is not to just bring them to Christ and then just leave them and go, oh, hey, good luck. Have a great day. So long. We're to make disciples. The word disciple in the Greek means learner under discipline or a disciplined learner. So if we are disciples of Jesus, we are learners of his truth, and we are disciplined to begin to do the things that he asks of us to do. That's the most basic form of discipleship. In the Hebrew culture, it was called Talmudim. And what a Talmudim meant was it meant an all-encompassing learner. Same idea, same concept. And it was they were to take the concepts of the scripture, not just the lineal text, but all of the surrounding spiritual implications with the word of God, and they were to apply them. Okay? Do you understand that? So as Christians, we are to be disciples. We are to be followers of Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Can I get a witness? Okay? Why don't you say this with me? This drives some people crazy. But, I'm, you know, I always tell them, relax, have a Cinnabon, go have a bagel. Jesus isn't as concerned about this as you are. Say this with me. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. Discipleship has nothing to do with your perfection. It has everything to do with his perfection. In other words, you're to walk with Christ, towards Christ, under the things that he calls you. And guess what? You're going to make mistakes. Okay? You're going to make mistakes. And so a lot of times what happens, we make mistakes, and then we start self-condemning. We're like, oh, I'm no good. Jesus doesn't love me. No, 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 no. On and on and on we go. Well, first of all, it's not about you. And second of all, it's not about your perfection. The issue isn't whether you make a mistake. The issue is, is once you make a mistake, do you get back up and go in the right direction again? That's the issue. So the, and how many times can you do that? Can we say 70 times 7 in one day? That's 490 times. I'm not quite sure, but that's more than one an hour. So you can make one mistake, more than one. Jesus is like, look, as many times as it takes. That's what he's telling you. It's the question isn't whether you, if you fail or whether you don't do it right or whether you don't make a mistake. The question is, are you going back? Are you course correcting and going back into the, into the right direction? He's not about condemnation. He's not about judgment. We put laws on people that produce no life. 
Grace is amazing because it's Christ's power working through us. It's Jesus' power working through us. It's not a system of externals. It's the power of the internal. And when you understand that God is gracious to you, when you fail, you'll get up and go again. Come on. If you view God as harsh and you view him as a taskmaster and you view him as someone who is going to be mean, you'll never go to him. You, in fact, you'll hide yourself to him from him. And what that actually tells you is that you have a wrong perception of who he is. So the way that we respond, even when we do wrong or even when we find ourselves out of balance, I'll give you a better one. Even when the Lord corrects you, the way you respond to his correction tells you how you view how you view him. So if the Lord corrects you and you go hide in a corner and suck your thumb or you disappear and you're gone for six months, you don't understand that you're loved. Because he's not telling you something out of wickedness. He's not telling you something out of harshness. He's telling you something out of love. His intention for you is to take you from where you are to the place that you, to the place that you were called to be. And he is always working to lift you higher. When you know that you're loved, it doesn't matter what he says to you because it's good. No matter if you like it or if you don't like it, what he's saying to you is for your good. And if you don't receive it that way and you go, oh, God doesn't love me. He told me I have a problem with anger. He told me I have a problem with a big mouth. Or he told me I have an attitude problem. Or he tells me I have a consistency problem. Or he tell, he start, what he's dealing with you on is he's dealing with you on your character. Character is, ne- I'm on another subject entirely here this morning. <laughs> character Character is, respons- is, is necessary for glory. The Bible says he, he, he called us, He sanctified us, He justified us in order to glorify us. What does that mean? Glory is, means weight. God wants to put weight and substance and meaning and purpose and power on your life. That's what it means. But He can't do that just out of hand. He has to build a foundation within you. That foundation is character and consistency. It's not character and perfection, it's character and consistency. Some of you, you have callings on your life, but you can't keep your big mouth shut, so you're never going to get there. Until you can learn to keep your big mouth shut and use your mouth as the tool that God intended it to be, you're not going to get there. Some people, you have callings on your life, you have God, you, you're believing God for something, but you have a consistency problem. And it's not that God doesn't want to give you what you're asking for, He needs to help you work on your consistency problem. And the first thing you got to do is acknowledge that he's telling, when he shows you this, it's like, okay, I have a consistency problem. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he's against you. He's actually saying, Kevin, I can't give this to you until you prove me more, prove to me, or show me, or I'll begin to operate in the consistency that I'm calling you to. Fear is another one. A lot of people have dreams and visions. A lot of people are forerunners into the kingdom. God has set something before you of great purpose and great power, but fear grips you and disqualifies you every step of the way. And you want to blame God and say, well, I'm just waiting on Jesus to do it. Well, Jesus isn't going to do it for you. It's not, I just taught Reader's Digest. We think Jesus shows up with a check and a bunch of balloons. Here it is. He gives you vision. He gives you purpose. He gives you direction. And he expects you to draw from his courage and step out and step out in faith. And he doesn't condemn you when you make a mistake. Jesus never corrected the disciples for making mistakes. Let's just say this together. He never corrected them for making mistakes. He corrected them when they were cowardly. That's the only correction you ever see, was the cowardice. Or when they stopped believing. That's the only time he ever corrected them. When they went for it, he never corrected them. 
Never. There's no, there's no correction given there. When they went for what he wanted them to do, he didn't go, well, I wouldn't have did it that way, or that wasn't really the way I did it. He's like, all right, good job. Now what we should do is we should do it like this, or we should do it like that, or we should. But the correction is always for cowardice. So here's the deal. So we have to have a, ra- there's a radical minimum standard to our discipleship. Everybody hold up five. Right? Five's a good number. You know why we use five here all the time? Because it's a handful. It's about all we can handle is five. So there are five things that are necessary to basic discipleship. And number one is, everybody say it with me, read your Bible. Number two is prayer. Number two is commit and connect to church. Number four is financially give. And number five is live on mission. In order for you to operate in the river or the flow of the kingdom of God in your life, these five things are essential and they're necessary to be moving in your life consistently. There needs to be a consistent rhythm where the scripture is being brought into your heart, where there's a consistent rhythm of prayer. There's a consistent rhythm where you not just go to church, you commit and connect to the body in which God has set you. There needs to be a consistent rhythm where you're giving and you're following that track. There needs to be a consistent rhythm where you're living on mission or fulfilling the mission of Christ. And that's another definition. But this is what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. And so whether this is a core element to our church, We're called to make disciples. Well, my question to the Lord was, what does discipleship look like? And what I would always do is fire off this big thing. I always looked at it like this, and I realized people aren't even at this level. And I would ask the Lord, what disqualifies us from that level? And the Lord says, you don't meet the minimum standard. You're not meeting the minimum requirement. And here it is. If you can't run with a footman, or if if you run with the footman and you get tired, how in the world are you going to run with horses? Some of y'all, you want to run with horses. You're believing God. You want something great. You want something amazing. You want to run with horses. You want my life, you want my life to have meaning. You want my life to have purpose. That's running with horses. But the Lord says, like, you can't, you get, you, you can't even do this, but you want that. It's like, I want to put a, I want to, I want to, I want to do calculus. Well, I can't do calculus if I don't know remedial math. I want to create new colors. And well, you don't even gonna, you're not going to know that if you don't know how color composition works. There's basic things that need to be in place in order for the higher things to be established. Amen. Communication works the same way. Grammar, language, structure, all of these things. There's a minimum standard that has to be in place in order for you to achieve it. And these are the five basic things that I've noticed in my own life that when I began to do these things, everything changed. I changed. And then when I changed, everything around me began to change. These need to be the consistent rhythms of your life. To go higher, you have to master and practice the basics. Let's just say that together. To go higher, I must practice and master the basics. Same thing with music. When you hear the people up here playing music, there's a foundation. There's basic chords that they're playing. G, C, D. You know, E, F, there's a foundation. They're not just up here not randomly playing notes. He's playing G, she's playing E. You know, they're, they're, they're playing in synchronicity, and there's a foundation that has to be laid in order for them to bring harmony. Next slide. And all the worship leaders said, yes, amen, thank God. <laughs> what is the Bible's basic instructions before leaving earth? It's pretty much it. I'm going to answer four simple questions for you this morning. The first one's where we get the Bible. Now, this is a very big answer, okay? And I'm going to simplify it to you in the most condensed form I can. I mean, I could literally just talk to you for two or three hours about, not that I'm going to, but two or three hours about where we got the Bible. The most basic understanding of where the Bible comes from is, ever say it with me, the scripture, scripture. Comes, comes 
from the Holy Spirit. We have the prophetic word confirmed. In other words, God's word is confirmed. God declares something and he says, this is my word. He puts a prophetic word on it and he confirms it. And he says, see, I told you this was my word. No other book like that. There's no Bible that tells you the end from the beginning. There's no Bible that declares specific prophecies and they're fulfilled in detail. There's nothing. Jehovah Witness Bible, wrong answer. Mormon Bible, wrong answer. Quran, wrong answer. Bhakti Gita, whatever, the writings of Buddha, wrong answer. First of all, there's no prophets, prophecies in those books, per se. Secondly, they're written by one person, for the most part. Bible's incomparable. Everybody wants to compare the Quran to the Bible. I'm like, there's no comparison. Amen. There's literally no... We got one dude, wrote that book over 60 years. Well, I got a book that was written over 1,500 years by 40 different people, and it all says the same thing. I mean, how are we even, how are we even comparing this? There is no comparison. It says, you do well to heed this word because it's a light that shines in a dark place until the day, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Until revelation becomes a pattern. To revelation, there's rhema word, there's logos word. We read the word, but the word reads us. We read the word, but we have insight into the word. So logos is written, rhema is revealed. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation. In other words, some dude didn't just make this up. I think this would be a good thing. I think I'll write that. They didn't make it up. For prophecy or the word of God never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God inspired the pen of the writer. Okay? That's a very simple understanding. I could get way more detailed. But if you understand that, you're going to go far. The, whole, the book comes from the Holy Spirit, was written exclusively to God's chosen people who are the Hebrew Jewish descendants. Is that me? No. <laughs> no, that's not me. I don't have a tinkly, tinkly sound. I got, more, I got more of a manly ringtone on my phone. <laughs> it rings and goes, like a man. That's what my, my ringtone says. <laughs> so it says God spoke, so God used the Hebrew descendants of Abraham. If you want to get technical, the J Jewish people were actually not called Jews until the nation divided. Eventually, in the Jewish, in the history of the Hebrew people, the nation divided and they were no longer known as Hebrews. They were simply known as the people who lived in Judah, which was that's where they got the word Jewish. So God used Hebrew descendants of Abraham. What does Hebrew mean? This is going to help a lot of you. Because you think, you know, you're worshiping saints on a wall or you could never be used by God or God doesn't really care about you. The word Hebrew means the people from over there. That's what it means. And what it really means is the outsider, the unwanted. They were a group of people called Hebrews, descendants of Heber, but it meant on the other side of the river. That's, that's, what, that's literally what the interpretation is. Who are the Hebrews? Oh, those are the people from the other side of the river, the other side of the tracks, the other side of town. Nobody wants to talk to you. That's the people God uses. Like we were talking about Christmas time. Who's the first person he announces to? The, the shepherds. The shepherds were the unwanted. He didn't, go to, he didn't go to the wanted. He went to the unwanted. He didn't use the refined. He used the unrefined. He takes the unrefined and makes them refined. That way he gets the glory. You know, if you had it all together, there's no glory in that for the Lord. The glory is when he takes the broken and makes it whole. That's the point. So he used the Hebrew descendants of Abraham specifically. Bible says God heard Abraham believed God and it was given to him as righteousness. So by faith, Abraham was set apart by God and God said, there's a guy that's going to listen to me. 
So I'm going to take this guy who actually wants to listen to me in a world of people who don't want to listen to me, and I'm going to use his descendants, and I'm going to bring my word into the world. That's what he did, because man had lost, man was sinful, there was darkness, no knowledge, lost. And so God used his descendants, he gave them specific criteria. They were to copy and write his words in a specific form, there was to be no error in the translation, and they preserved the word of God for generations. And the Bible that you have in your hand today is absolutely, they can take the oldest manuscripts, and it's called textual analysis or textual comparison, and they can take your Bible that's in your hand, and they can compare it to manuscripts that are very, very old, and the same manuscript is the same Bible that you have in your hand. So this is unaltered. It isn't, I don't know about you, if you know about this, if you guys ever with Jehovah Witnesses, I don't know why I'm picking on JWs here this morning. <laughs> they have changed their prophecies multiple times. They have actually altered their Bible multiple times. Okay? You have an inerrant word of God that is unaltered. Amen. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. It's not changing. So you can, you, can, you can cash the check that it promises you that there's money on. It gives you a promise, you can bank on it, it's there. He didn't change it. This wasn't trans, somebody didn't wake up and decide to do this. God spoke to Abraham. He proved himself to Abraham through prophecy. Abraham believed that God was going to do it, and Abraham did it. And he proved himself to his descendants. He gave them specific prophetic words over their life. And as he proved himself, their loyalty and their trust became deeper and deeper and deeper. And through him proving himself and through the faith of Abraham and his descendants, God adopted his descendants to bring his word and to activate his plan to bring a savior. God, Jews are God's chosen people. Everybody heard that? That doesn't mean they're more special than every individual on the planet. We have to ask the question, well, what were they chosen for? Well, two simple things. One was the preservation of the word of God. And the second one was the preservation of the bloodline for the Messiah. The Messiah had to come through a specific bloodline. He couldn't be born by anybody. He had to be born of the line of Abraham. He had to be born of the line of David. He had to be born of the line of Judah. He had to be born of a certain bloodline. And so they were chosen by God to preserve his word, which they have performed faithfully, and they were chosen by God to preserve their generations. That's why genealogies in the Bible are very important. And you thought your family tree was complicated. Have you ever read the Bible? You ever gone to the book of Numbers? It's like, who cares? So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. It shows you how deeply concerned they were about preserving the bloodline. They were very specific about preserving ancestry. It's interesting that after the temple was destroyed, the ancestry's been lost. And the reason is because they don't need it anymore. Messiah has come. So the need to preserve the ancestry was simply to bring forth the Messiah. And he's come, so God's like, it's not, doesn't matter anymore. Nobody cares, you know? <laughs> he's like, well, it doesn't matter. It's like, it's not that important. <laughs> the Bible is a book of beginnings. It tells you the beginning of it all. It tells you history, the history, God's story, his story and history. It's a book of poetry, not American poetry, Bible, Hebrew poetry specifically, their value is, and some of you ladies, you're going to think, wow, I thought that was only me. I'm actually poetic. You say the same thing different ways. Any women here that do that? All right, you're married? I have, one, I have a poetic wife. She's like that. She says the same thing to me in five different ways. It's like it's Hebrew poetry. That's what she's talking to me. I'm like, haven't you told me this like four different ways? But that's exactly what the Bible calls poetry. 
As they say, that's my boy, some sherry over there. So they tell you that they tell you the um, they would tell you the same thing in multiple ways. That's what poet. That's why when you read Psalms or you read Proverbs or you read Lamentations, it's saying the same thing. That's what what's considered Hebrew poetry, wisdom and instruction. It's a book of wisdom and a book of instruction. One of the things it says is how can a person cleanse their ways? It says by taking counsel according to his word. So you, you got a really messed up life. You got a really blown out. The Bible says, how can you change that? Start taking counsel according to his word. Next slide. Why was the Bible given? Great answer, great question. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. The Bible was given as a light unto mankind for those who would receive it. The Bible is, the Hebrews tells us the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It divides soul from spirit. You know what that means? When you learn the word of God and you learn the promises, you're going to learn truth from lies. You're going to learn what is of the spirit and what is merely your emotions. That's what it does. It divides soul from spirit. Soul is the realm of the mind, the will, and the emotion. Spirit is the will of God. So when you put the word of God in you, it's living and powerful. It's alive. It divides. It separates. It separates from truth from lies. And it, it judges the attitude of the heart. That's what it does. The Bible is an amazing thing. When you put it in you and it's activated by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to activate it. He actually begins to speak it back to you. Is that really what you want to do, Kevin? Yeah, that is what I want to do. And then he'll give me a verse. I'll be like, oh, I guess that's not what I want to do. Dang it but it divides. Some of you, you have a lot of instability problems emotionally. We talk about truth and reality here a lot. Truth is not reality. Many of you, there's truths that are spoken over your life, but you're experiencing a completely different reality. And we think that the reality is truth. The reality is not the truth. Truth is truth. And what the Christian is called to do is to press into the truth, believe God for the truth, activate the promises of God until truth becomes your reality. A lot of you, it's like, it's like we accept and we accept a reality that is not from God. The Bible says, Beloved, I, believe, I desire above all things that you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. It's the will of God that you prosper, that you be in health, and that your soul prospers. Yet no, some of you, that is the furthest thing from you. There's no prosperity in your life. There's no health in your life. And your soul most certainly isn't prospering. And you say, this is my reality. Well, the truth says this is what God wants. So you need to believe God and press into the truth until truth comes into your world. That's right. I'm going to stand right over here with Moises right here. <laughs> you have to do that. And that's how this stuff activates. That's how the word of God becomes flesh. The word comes into our world through the activation of the promises. We pull from one world into his. It's called contending for the promises. Don't make any excuses for laziness, Christian. Don't make any excuses. We make excuses because we're lazy. We don't want to contend for the promises. We don't want to stand in faith. We don't want to believe God and do the things that he's telling us to do in order for things to change. We want to point the finger at him and say, it's your fault, it's not his fault. You need to know who you are, you need to take your rightful position, and you need to press in for what is yours, and you need to stand until it comes. And in the standing, he will instruct you. He will give you wisdom as you're standing. You're going to believe? It's all through the scripture. 
We see it. I teach you guys this. It's like seven times. Name and dip seven times. Elijah said seven. Was seven the magic number? No. Seven was the number it took. Seven meant it was the number of completion. It means he did it until it was done. So he dipped until it was done. Maybe it was three. Maybe it was five. Maybe it was 15. We don't know. But seven is a prophetic number. It means it was done until he did it. He did it until it was complete. Elijah, another story was seven. Sent the prop, sent his servant up to pray seven times, didn't he? And what happened? He saw a hand break through. He saw a cloud in the atmosphere. He prayed until he saw the hand of God break into the atmosphere. Did he pray seven times? Did he pray three times? Did he pray ten times? Did he pray 40 times? We don't know. What the Bible is telling us is he prayed until the hand of God broke through. You get the point? This is the deal. And what we want to do is we want to blame God for everything. But that's our problem. We, first of all, we have to accept the responsibility that's on our end. We are heirs and we are sons and daughters. And we have to know our authority, and we have to know what's rightfully ours. If you want anything to change, you're asking God to do something that he's already done. And we have to push ourselves and become what we don't want to be. Everything in you fights prayer. Can I get a witness? Right? No, I pray every morning in just such an elegant, sashaying way. Really? Well, put that on me, because that doesn't always work for me. Right? Obedience comes naturally to me in every way. No. No, it doesn't. But you have to decide the person that you want to be. And you can be who you say you are, you can be who the world says you are, or you can begin to become who you, God says you are. This is what it means to conform and transform. Conformity means you be the way that we told you, or the way that we say. That's conformity. Transforming means we become who we were created to be. Transforming means we become who we, heaven says we are. That's the difference. Conformity, Christianity is a non-conformist movement and has been so from the beginning. It's the first globalized counterculture movement. Some of you non-conformists were like, I knew it! I knew there was something about this that I liked. I knew it! <laughs> we conform. God is not interested in you conforming to anybody's image of you and he doesn't even look at what he wants for you. He calls it transformation. For you to go from who you say you are to realize that you are a son and a daughter, that's a transformation. That's a leap. Conformity is to be molded. Transforming is to like leap from one place to the other. And when you begin to understand that you are a son of the highest, you are a daughter of the highest, that the authority, that I have the spiritual authority and I'm not activating it, that I have a spiritual inheritance, that I have a destiny, a purpose, whatever that is encompassed by what God says over us, we begin to take account for that and begin to own that. Your identity shifts. It doesn't care. I don't care what grandma said you were. None of it matters. Who does Jesus say you are? It doesn't matter what your past says you are. Who does Jesus? Identity is crucial to the activation of the kingdom of God. Crucial. It's, it's, it's not even, it's, I can't even use a better word. Maybe critical. It is necessary. Without identity, there is no activation. And so we have a beat-down system within the church. We like to beat people down. We have a beat-down system, or we just kind of like everything just goes with the flow, or we, just, or we have some kind of popcorn cheese, cheese ball uh, thing that we're doing on, on, on Sunday morning. I don't know what we're doing. But the, the purpose of Sunday morning is to reinforce the identity of the believer the purpose of Sunday morning is to release the Word of God and activate the identity of the believer. It's the day you get your head on straight. Because all week long you've been being told who you were. And Sunday morning you come and you say, no, this is who you really are. You're not that. You're this. 
Things can change. Nothing's going to change. Things can change. Things will change. This word is a lamp. It divides. It discerns our thoughts and intents. The Bible tells us it testifies of Jesus. Jesus says, Lo, I have come, and what is written of me in the volume of the book, to do your will, O God. So the word of God is what testifies of Christ. Jesus says, I have come forth from the Father. He's God, humbled as man, to perform the work of God on the earth, according to the book. John says this, he's talking to the teachers of the day because they thought they were so smart, so beautiful, so amazing. And he says, you're searching the scriptures because you think the scriptures have eternal life. But the scriptures are what testify of me. You see? So they thought, well, the book has the power. No, the book is the guiding light to Christ. Jesus literally, John 1, is the word of God himself. You want to know Jesus, you got to know his word, people. You know? You don't, I didn't say you had to understand it at first reading, but you got to know him. Old Testament is Jesus concealed. New Testament is Jesus revealed. Next slide. There it goes. Down goes the count. What was my question? What's the third question? Can you see it on the slide? See, you know there's something good here when I preach the, when I, when I, when I completely blow out the, the AV. Just bring me the computer. Just unplug it and bring me the computer. Just tell me the third question. I know I can work off it. I just can't remember. I know the fourth one. But... What is it? Oh, there it is. Is it back? No, it's gone. It's up. It's gone. It's back. It's gone. What is it? Bible is a portal into the presence of God. Can you bring it to me? Just unplug it and bring it to me. Thank you for bearing with This is how technology is like magical, isn't it? Like everything's supposed to work. Really? It doesn't always work. Dave, you're into technology, aren't you? Yeah. Does it always work? Uh, I like to use a hammer. You like to use a hammer? <laughs> it works when you use the hammer. <laughs> I'm just going to pull up a different way. So what is it? All right, I'm going to stick it right over here. I'm going to jump back over here. It's 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. The Bible is a collection of 66 books. And I'll tell you how prophetic this is. God closed the Old Testament with 39 because he's a prophetic God. The 40th book, number 40 in the Bible is the book of visitation, is the number of visitation. Did you know that? And so 39 closes the old because the 40th was going to begin with the visitation of the king. Jesus said, you discern the skies and you can say you know all of these things, but you cannot discern the hour of your visitation. 40 weeks, something happens, ladies, when you're pregnant. What? You have a little visitor, don't you? At 40 weeks, right? 40 days, 40 nights, God visited the earth, right? 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus was visited in the desert. It's a number of visitation. So 39 is to tell us something that the Old Testament closes because it's now we're beginning the visitation of the king. It's written over a 1,500-year period, 40 different offers, three different continents. Moses wrote in the Sinai, that's Africa. Paul wrote in Rome, that's, that's Europe. And the prophets prophesied not just from Jerusalem, but they prophesied from Babylon, that's Asia Minor. Three continents. The, con the continuity and the continuous unity of the book cannot be compared. There's no other book like it. If we were to take bets here on what the score of, we'll use the Patriots. Somebody's going, down with the Patriots, but we have a Patriots fan here today. What the score of the Patriots game is going to be, and who's going to win, not just who's going to win, but how many yards are going to be gained, what, quarter, how, what the score is going to be, and all the statistics. And we were to take all of that information by the people in this room, we, wouldn't, we, wouldn't even, we might get close on the score maybe, 
But yet the Bible takes 40 different authors and gets specific, down to the letter, and in some cases, down to the exact day. This is my favorite. This is my favorite thing about the Bible. I love this. The Bible claims to be the Word of God, and it dares you to disprove it. Dares you. It's not even Jesus like, this is the Word of God, and I dare you. I dare you. Do you know how many people throughout history have tried to disprove the Bible? And what does he say? Heaven and earth are going to pass away. But that word ain't going nowhere. You ain't moving it. You know, if anybody's going to move my word, it's going to be me. But I'm certainly not going to let you, oh fallen, arrogant man, move my word. He's not going to do it. I love it. He invites textual criticism. He invites it. So we have, we, have, we have a group of, we have religions today that get mad and want to kill you if you challenge anything in their book. What? Well, what's to hide? I'm like, challenge it. Go for it. You can break this thing down six ways to Sundays. It's going to tell you the same thing. The only thing they do is they discredit it. This is how, this is how the critics of the Bible do. They just go, oh, it just couldn't be as it says. Just couldn't be. There, so I tell you guys this, there's, there are books in the Bible that are so specific and so accurate, the Jews themselves have excluded them from their text because they can't deal with the fact that the Messiah is in the Old Testament. Isaiah has been completely, the Sephardic Jews do not follow the Bible of the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah is the evangelist of the Old Testament. Tells you he's going to be pierced, tells you he's going to be crucified, tells you he's going to be resurrected, tells you the whole thing. And they go, no, we can't accept it, so they get rid of it. Book of Daniel is so point-specific and has been so historically point-specific that they say, this must have been written after the fact. That's the only way they can disprove it. There's nothing in the scripture. Everything in it can be historic. They, what they, use this, they use the Bible as a roadmap for archaeology. They go and find Jericho, right where the Bible says Jericho is. They go and find the city of Troy, which is the city of Troas, exactly where the Bible says it is. The guy from Standard Oil became a multi-billionaire because he read about tar pits being in the Middle East. And he said, if there's tar pits, there must be oil. And so Standard Oil went over there, and what did they discover? Oh my gosh, there's oil pits here. There's oil fields here. That's what they did. It's like a, literally a roadmap. If you compare that to other books, there's no history, and there's literally nothing that they can point to that, 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 prov that proves the accuracy of their text. There's nothing there. It's a book of promises, it's a book of revelation, and it's a book of life success. Everybody want any of that? Yeah? Long before Tony Robbins, there was this. <laughs> Joshua 1.8, this book of the law, or this, the word law means way, this book of my way shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do all that is in it. Then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Some of you, come on, I got, got Moises over here, man. We got him going. This is awesome. So the, the deal is that some of you, you're waiting on success. You're waiting on things to happen. The scripture tells us that the Bible itself is the principles of success. When you learn it, meditate on it, begin to declare it. It shall not depart your mouth. Didn't say your mind, didn't even say your heart. We have to speak his word. We have to declare his word. It says, be strong and of good courage. Do not be dismayed for I'm with you wherever, you, wherever you're to go. This is what it looks like. Some of you guys, you want success, you want prosperity. It begins here. What are we to do with it? Okay, we're to, whether we understand it or not, we're to read it. Crickets, crickets. <laughs> oh man. Our modern world, apart from when the when the, the lights go down here, our modern world gives you amazing features. You can read it anywhere you go. We don't even we don't even carry Bibles to church anymore. 
we have them on our phone, right? We don't, and it's like, what? And not only would you have them on our phone, you can get audio Bible on your phone. You can read it. You can listen to it. There, I'm going to show you some apps here at the end. The verse itself will pop right up. If you do a Bible reading plan, you don't even have to look for the book. You say, I want to read John chapter 1 on Tuesday. You put that in the thing. Boom, John chapter 1 on Tuesday is going to be right there on your phone. I mean, it's like, what, 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 what more do we need? I mean, you know, massage it into us? I mean, I'm not really sure. <laughs> First John says, you have an anointing which you've received from him and it abides on you. So how do we learn? We learn by reading and we learn through the anointing. You learn through teaching of the word, which is what's happening here. But you also learn by encountering the Holy Spirit as you read. If you will begin to read in partnership with the Holy Spirit, and you'll begin to read and begin to hear what God is saying, Lord, what does this mean? What are you saying here? I don't understand this. Why did you say that? What is the revelation? Give me revelation. Give me insight. One of the most powerful ways to read the Bible is read until something hits you. You know, you start reading and boom. Sometimes I would read and I wouldn't get past one verse. I did John 3.16 one time. Simple verse. God so loved the world. And what kept standing out to me was God so loved. He's so loved. And it's just boom. And I just started meditating on, wow, you so loved. You know, you didn't just love. You so loved. You so loved. You gave. You know, and you begin, to, you begin to see insights and things into it. So we're to read the Bible, we're to encounter the anointing or use the anointing, and then we're supposed to study the Bible. We study the Bible individually. You study the Bible through groups. That's why we have small groups. So we have small groups where there's some small group study, individual study, and then you have church. All of these things are necessary. It's not either or, it's and. All of these things are necessary. Romans says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we think that if we just hear the word, we're going to get faith. That's not what it's saying. The key to this is you want to learn to hear the voice of the Spirit. Say this with me. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has, a has a language, and it's called Scripture. That's right. You want to learn to hear the Holy Spirit, you must learn His language. Scripture. Okay? So the Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So we, get, we learn to hear by the Word of God. We learn to hear the voice of the Spirit by the Word of God. This has not been taught in the church because there's a lot of denominations and a lot of people that don't believe Jesus doesn't speak anymore. They just don't believe he talks, right? My sheep hear my voice. That's what my Bible says, right? All who have ears to hear, let them say, hear what the Spirit is saying, not has said, is saying to the churches. He's still speaking. We learn to hear by the word of God. And when we learn to hear, what this means is faith is increased when you have a word from the Lord. It's a whole different thing. You get a scripture and you have faith. The Lord speaks something to you in the spirit and your faith goes up a whole, a whole bunch. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. The Lord says something to you or over you. It increases your faith. It goes up higher. Anybody got your phone? We're going to do some homework. I got some homework for you. Oh, man. I hope it's not math. <laughs> your homework looks like this. First thing you're going to do, I want you to do this week, so I want you to read Psalm 119. It's 175 verses. What? Yeah, it might take you, it might actually, ready? It might actually take you 10 minutes to read that, okay? So just brace yourself. I know, you got, I know we've got so many important things to do, but I want you to read Psalm 119, and it's a psalm all about the Word of God. And you're going to see some things in there that are very profound. And I've taken these things to heart. One of my favorite parts is, Lord, through your word, I'm wiser than my teachers. You want to get smart? <laughs> I believe that God's word would make me smart. 
It happens. So read Psalm 119. If you have your phone and you go to the app store, okay, you got a smartphone. If you got a dumb phone, I can't help you. But, you know, <laughs> if you got a smartphone, if you go to the app store or you go, whatever you have, I happen to have an Android. <gasps> No, the Apple people are like, ha, 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 you know, laughing at me, snickering down their noses at me, but that's okay. I like my Galaxy. It's fine. You like it too? We got to, yeah, there we go. We got, a, we got a few. We got a few, right? We don't have a, we're not full of Apple snobs here, even though we have a few Apple snobs. I have an Apple computer, so, but anyway. If you go to Bible Gateway, so if you go to the App Store and you go to, uh, or your uh, whatever the Apple Store is, uh, you go there and you download Bible Gateway. The Apple, put the app on your phone. There's Bible Gateway on your phone. Right? Ooh, what happens? Right there, two down, is audio Bible. What? So you don't even have to read it. If you got Bluetooth in your car and your car syncs to your phone, all you got to do is hit Bluetooth or hit the audio Bible. And if you got a half hour commute to work and you're listening to the New Testament, I think within 30 minutes you're going to listen to two or three books, particularly the New Testament on audio. You're going to be amazed at what you do. And if you just take the time, you're going to ride to work with somebody. You may as well ride to work with Jesus, all right? So if you put it, yeah. So there's the audio Bible. You can also set up Bible reading plans. So Bible Gateway is one of them. The other one is um, version. Y-O-U version. And that one is the same thing. You can set up a Bible reading plan any way you want it. If you want to read every other psalm, it'll let you read every other psalm. You want to read the book of Psalms. You want to do the New Testament. You want to do the New Testament in a year. You want to do whatever it looks like. You can set up a Bible reading program on your phone. Okay? So I want you guys to download that. Homework is Psalm 119 and get, get some apps on your phone and program a Bible reading program or begin to use the audio version. Where do you start? Start in the New Testament. Very easy. You know, if you don't want to go to Moses, you don't want to go into all that you know, stuff you're not going to understand because it's outside of your context, you can start in the Psalms, you can start in Proverbs, or you can start in the New Testament. Highly recommend that. Very easy to do. And then the last thing is, when you're reading or when you're listening, you're going to start with a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, reveal your word to me. A simple process of invitation, and God's going to start revealing things to you through his word. He's not just going to reveal things to you through his word. He's going to cause you to question some things. I want to give you one more permission. I know I'm, I'm almost over. I'm right there. I want to give you one more permission. Say this with me. I have the permission to ask questions. Right. Some Christianity, some churches we teach don't question anything. Well, God never tells us to do that. That's the unfortunate thing of that, that statement, is he tells you to invite your questions. He wants you to say, what does this mean? What, if you look at Peter, Peter's a great example of that. I tell people all the time, we wouldn't understand half the things in the, Jesus said if Peter never asked him the question. He asked the question, so then Jesus reveals the question. And there's other places in the scripture where Jesus makes these statements, nobody asks a question. So Jesus doesn't give an answer. You don't, want the, you don't want the answer? Okay, crickets, he'll just leave it right there. But when the, when the question is asked, he reveals the answer. So practice inviting the Holy Spirit and go up. Bible literacy in the church is anemic, which means it's really bad. So there's not a lot of, it just, it's, it's probably less than 5% of all evangelical Christians have ever read their Bible from Genesis to Revelation once. 5%. Evangelicals are those who say Jesus is who he says he is, the Bible is real, we believe in the Holy Spirit, evangelism, all of those things. They believe the fundamentals. So the, 
evangelical Christians, less than 5% of them have ever read their Bible through one time. That's terrible. And we wonder why there's no power, and we wonder why there's no change, and we wonder why there's no transformation. So Bible literacy is important to me, and Bible literacy is important to this church. So I encourage you to read the book. Don't wait for the movie. Say, the Bible's on the movie now. Well, just read the book. Okay, I know there's a movie out. I know, I know. <laughs> Very Hollywood, you know. Was Jesus, was Mary really that good looking? I mean, man, she looks like she's got like, I mean, Mary's like blinging. You're like, what? <laughs> Where's she getting that robe from, man? So anyway, but I'm going to leave you with that. So that's your homework. That's your challenge. And that's what I want to leave you with. And I'm going to bless you because we've got another service we have to start. So let me bless you. Just receive it. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may he be gracious to you and give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.